For decades, our society has wrestled with how best to educate our youth relative to the risks of drug and alcohol abuse. One innovative approach that's been very effective has been the use of theater to help engage people in meaningful and effective conversations around the issue. Andy Short is our guest today. Andy is an executive director and actor with the theater group The Improbable Players. We'll get to know Andy and learn more about how The Improbable Players use theater as an effective means of prevention and education right here in our communities. All that and much more coming up next on Chapters. My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, we have Andy Short in studio. Welcome, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. Andy is the co-executive director of The Improbable Players, a theater troupe located in Watertown, Massachusetts, that are doing incredible things around um, educating on addiction, both for youngsters in school as well as adults like myself. Thanks for being here, Andy. We're very excited to have you and hear your story and hear more about the Improbable Players. Tell me more about this troupe. I know they were founded in 1984, and what, what's the mission of the Improbable Players? So the mission of the Improbable Players is to use theater to educate uh, both young people and communities about addiction, and we exclusively employ uh, actors who are in recovery to do that work. So uh, our kind of theory of the case is that uh, it's better to educate by showing young people and communities what addiction looks like, what seeking help actually looks like, yeah. uh, and what recovery looks like. And that's whether you have addiction yourself or not. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of this kind of work assumes that, oh, you're, we're talking to you because you're going to become an addict, and that is not our, our thesis. And right. because we're all in recovery, we, we kind of have a unique uh, credibility with young people really quickly. Yeah, let's pull that apart a little bit, Andy. I, I, I've, you know, I'm familiar with you. We're going to have you out here in Foxborough on May 24th. We're very excited about that show. Um, you mean at 7 p.m. at the... That's right, at the Old Orpheum Theater. The Old Orpheum. That's right. That's, how did you know? <laughs> I just, you know, I heard about it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but the great thing about theater is that kids are used to being lectured to. They used to be to told just say no. They used to, you know, it's kind of a mono monotone that gets drowned out very, very easily. Theater engages people differently and engages different senses. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. We were talking a little bit about this earlier, but, uh, you know, in, in all these other areas of education, we try to be innovative. We try to find really relevant hooks into the lives of young people that teach uh, you know, math or history or, or English. And then a lot of times in health, uh, first of all, it's very fad driven. So right. it's very like, what is the hot health topic this year? You know, it's bullying five, 10 years ago. It's opioid crisis now. Um, and so there's that issue. But the, but the other issue is that we kind of assume that young people, especially when they're susceptible to addiction, which is really in middle school to late elementary school, right. um, that we can just lecture to them like they're college students. Right. Uh, and it's not developmentally appropriate. In theater, to use theater, you know, whenever I tell people, I speak a lot about our work, and whenever I tell people about using theater to do this, uh, we get a good reaction. People, people like art. 
people like that we're using art for social good. I love that. But the the thing is, it's not just like a cute idea or like a, a creative idea. It's actually more effective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than using a lecture format or mm-hmm. using a video that's impersonal. Yeah, I think there's two things that you said that are extremely important there. One in particular I want to highlight, and that is uh, people may be shocked to hear the idea of, of preventative measures need to happen in elementary and middle school. Uh, and that is what science tells us right now. You know, people see the old just say no and focusing on drugs is the problem. The problem aren't the drugs. Those are the sol- happen to be one of the solutions available to people that are feeling very lost, and those feelings develop at a very young age, right? Yeah. Well, can, just to, to talk about that, like, that's another piece is that addiction, uh, it's it's a mental disorder, right? And so Defined the, as a mental illness by the National, National Institute of Health. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I talk about this. I just did a teacher training this weekend, and, uh, and I said, you know, I have good news because your opinion— as to whether addiction is a disease or not, actually, you don't even have to worry about that anymore. It's completely removed from your docket of responsibilities, right? Like, like if you are a grown-up uh, and you're worried about, like, the implications of addiction as a disease or enabling people, you know, all these terms that get kind of thrown around, um, you don't have to because doctors... Uh, have determined that it's a mental disorder and disease yeah. and that uh, that it's characterized by the compulsive seeking uh, and use of substances despite the consequences. Right, right. Uh, and so then what do we do with that? Right. You know, right. how do we prepare people to deal with the reality that because um, it's very confusing. Right. Right. To, right. to live with an addict. Uh and to have that in your life, whether you're that addict or you're dealing with it. And so that's why we we want to show the whole picture. You want to show yeah. the whole picture. And, and you are only employing actors in long-term recovery. So mm-hmm. every single person that student, teacher, or adult sees on that stage has experienced addiction, alcoholism firsthand, substance use disorder firsthand. Yeah, and to us that's, that's almost a, a solution to a logistical issue of um, – to connect with students and to to gain their attention, uh, you need to build trust with them, right? And there are a couple of ways to build trust. You can have an ongoing relationship, Mm -hmm. whether that's as a teacher in a school or maybe a therapeutic relationship in other contexts, or you can be an expert in your subject area, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, the the way for us, we're experts in our experience, Mm -hmm. we say. So... um, because we've experienced this, we can at least talk about the experience of addiction firsthand mm-hmm. and can answer like really specific questions about, oh, what is it like? Uh, we have several people whose drug of choice is marijuana. We talk about we're able to talk about that from a place of experience mm-hmm. as opposed to getting dragged into conversations that might seem more controversial or more political like where we totally take it out of that realm mm. and we're just talking from our experience and mm. that's that's something we can only do because our cast is entirely people in recovery so there are two troops of improbable players there's one based out of watertown massachusetts and also one in new york city the the, the improbable players as i alluded to before uh, started in 1984 by lynn bratley uh who was the founder she's a um an alcoholic in recovery uh, and it was her story that kind of uh, started the the theatrical production. But since that time, the improbable players have seen 
over a million audience members, uh, which that just blows my mind. And I know recently you have uh, had theatrical productions in many of our suburban communities. Um, I know Whalen, Sudbury, Sharon, um, you'll be here. Um, so you, you really are enjoying a lot of success doing this and reaching a lot of young people. But you also have other programming. You have four particular productions. Um, so you can gear your programming to students and or adults or mixed audiences. Can you tell us more about the productions? Yeah. So we have uh, three what we call basically our flagship shows. Mm-hmm. And what those are is they're, they use what are called, what's called applied theater. So you basically use theater as a tool to express something that happened in the the real world, yep. um, and so those are uh, constructed from true stories. So actually, our first play is the life story, the recovery story of Lynn Bratley, who was the founder, uh-huh. uh, and it tracks her descent over the course of years into alcohol as alcoholic drinking. Um, that was her drug of choice. Uh, it tracks really a, the how the family responds, right? So. The daughter in that story struggles uh, throughout with her mother's drinking, mm-hmm. with the embarrassment of it, mm-hmm. with not, you know, understanding really the disease model of addiction. Right. 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 Uh, and we don't we don't like pause the show to give you like a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> about that. Um, we just show right, what right. addiction actually looks like. Yeah. And and then eventually the daughter, despite the protestations, the protestations of her father, um, seeks help at her school. Mm-hmm. We show that. Uh, and then she gets help for the family. She suggests family counseling. They go with it. Um, and they all get into recovery together, except for the son who who gets uh, addicted towards the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like our, that's our first show. We still perform it. Um, it's very relevant. Uh, and, and just to bring it back to this education point, yeah. uh, it actually is an alignment with the National Institute of Health and Surgeon General's best practices around prevention education because we're modeling positive behavior, right? So we're actually showing what the behavior looks like that we wish to see in our population, right? Right. right. Um, And uh, and that's whether you're young or old, right? Right, right. Because... Uh, you know, my mother was drank alcoholically and my dad had a lot of the same behaviors that that dad and that play did, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so we show what we want to see. Now that particular, that first performance, is that yeah. geared to schools, middle schoolers, or it's, could that be produced for anybody? Well, so the nice thing is anybody. because it's a story. Yeah. Uh, anyone can see us. Okay, interesting. If you're just tuning in, I want to remind you, you're listening to Chapters Radio. My name's Jim Derrick. You can find us at www.chaptersradio.com. Our guest in studio today is Andy Short. He is the co-executive director of the Improbable Players Theater Troupe located here in Watertown, Mass. And we're in the middle of talking about the production uh, that the uh, the productions, I should say, that the improbable players have. So you have three more that you that you focus on. Can you describe those, Andy? Yeah, yeah. So um, the other shows that we use to to kind of prompt this discussion and to show what you should do and what it looks like is uh, running on E, which is a show that's really about. Uh, peer relationship. So it follows four students through their senior year of high school. And two of them uh, go down kind of an addictive 
uh, path, and then uh, the other two are kind of left to deal with it. Mm. Um, and so we show kind of what the different levels of that, right? Because addiction affects people differently, right? Um, and so there are two characters who one kind of gets uh, help in the end, and the other doesn't, and that's that's kind of the reality we're yeah. dealing with. That's a little bit more of a mature show, sure, but um, but is great especially for high school and college because mm-hmm. it. Uh, we also show like what it's like to be on the other side of like, well, what do I do if my friend uh, is in trouble? And I'm just, I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a counselor. I'm just a friend, right? What do I actually do? Uh, and so we show them again, like seeking help and what resources look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of, that's the reality in the context we're dealing Thank with. You. Um, and, and that actually is a thing that has been true. It's not new to the opioid crisis, right? right. Like that has been true. Uh, and so the fact that we're kind of, the opioid crisis has brought so much attention to this issue now is kind of lending us to wake up to all the other realities of, of what addiction does right. um, and when it starts. And uh, so my thing is that that connection and that conversation needs to happen very early and that actually, um, our instinct to be like, just saying, just don't do it, uh, actually makes a lot of sense because if you look at developmentally, the likelihood of developing an addiction and then getting into treatment, uh, if you starts earlier, you're much less likely to, to seek help and to get treatment, um, than people that start much later. Now, Andy, because your shows are interactive, you have an opportunity to talk with the audience uh, at the end of each of your shows. I know you ask the audience a particular question. What What is it that you, you ask? First of all, raise your hand. We'll do this in any audience. Raise your hand if you think you have a problem, uh, if, if you think you know someone who has a problem, uh-huh. I should say. Yeah. And uh, in middle school, we routinely get 70 to 80% of those hands Just, going up. I, you know, I saw that in, in the write-up. Mm-hmm. And and that I didn't know it was middle school that I was reading about. That is equal parts terrifying and sobering. No pun intended. It it, it sets you back in your chair when you think about that. It's incredible, and it's and we get. It's always surprising to the adults in the room, of course. Um, not to not to us at this point, right? Um, but in the other that it just it speaks to the fact that. Uh, and I wish I had the exact number on this, but the majority of people who do, who do develop an addiction yep. will start between the age of 10 and 13. Mm. So, uh, and, and by start, I mean they'll have their first use misuse of a substance. Generally self-medicate? Yeah, yeah, uh, for whether for anxiety or for... Maybe you know, by default, uh, through experimentation, they yeah. find, hey, that felt good mm-hmm. because I didn't like the other feelings I was having, and on they go. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. so... Yeah, Andy, we, we had a um, really wonderful lecturer, Dr. Ruth Pote, and it's P-O-T-E-E. You can look her up on YouTube. Uh, she's a family internal uh, medicine doctor, but she uh, specializes in addiction and mental health. And uh, she had some really important things to say uh, about risk factors relative to substance use disorder. One is early childhood trauma. Another one is genetics can be linked. Um, but the age of first exposure... It was an enormous 
enormous early predictor. So if somebody could delay to 24 years of age their first exposure, say, to marijuana, um, developmentally from a brain construct standpoint, uh, there is a much greater chance that should they develop a problem, you're right, they'll receive treatment or they'll seek treatment. And secondly, there's less of a chance that it will become an addictive part of their personality. So... um, Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. That's a really important point. And I don't want to, I don't mean to rehash the doctor's uh, findings. And I don't want to get into the whole kind of the brain science and all that. No, no, no. Here, but but the, the, my point is that that instinct is good yeah. and correct scientifically. And we need to be much smarter about how we educate about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I believe that's actually what we're doing is, is going at it in a way that's more uh, strategic. Mm-hmm. And that uh, also by having a format that's different, it's more memorable. So what are the two other two productions? So we have End of the Line, which mm-hmm. is our response to the opioid epidemic. And that is, that's like, think of it like four episodes um, of different ways that people got addicted to opioids. And we really show the beginning. Like we show that beginning moment uh, and how it progresses and then uh, how kind of how community can be a really helpful tool uh, that social emotional support can be a really helpful tool in in finding recovery Uh, and that is really instructive it's a great piece for parents to see I think because uh, they actually see what it looks like in the different ways it starts and the truth is like we found we interviewed a bunch of people on how it started Uh, and it you know we have this story of like I got a prescription that was too big and that happens all over uh, with the way people start with opioids is they get a script from a surgery or an injury um, for an opioid, and then they get started on that, and they get hooked, right? Yeah. So that's one of the stories, but it's only one, right? Like that's that, And it does happen, um, and there are all these other ways that people get addicted, right? Um, people maybe start with something else, and then they get... They progress more and more and more, and they just they want to get more and more messed up because they have the disease of addiction. Right. Um, and then there are people. We have one story, really the hardest story for me, and that's in that play is um, a mother who is an active addict who just wanted her. Uh, she was in active addiction, uh, couldn't deal with her child, and so gave her a pill mm. when she was quite young. I think she was eleven. True or story. Yeah, yeah. Um, all based on true stories, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, and that's how the daughter started. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, was she already predisposed? Had she already had difficulties? Maybe at eleven. But, if you were not given a choice, it's yeah. a pretty sad story. It's yeah. pretty tough. So, so we show that, um, and again, we point to resources and we ask. I forgot to close the loop on the last piece, which uh, we ask what who has been affected, who thinks they know someone, but we also ask uh, if they know who their counselors are. So we point to that, and especially at the end of the line, we make sure, uh, I mean, we do it with all our shows, but we show where your resources are. Mm-hmm. Well, how does this connect to your actual- In your community, yeah, right in, in your, your school, right here. Exactly. Yep, yep. Um, and we work with whoever we're going out to to, to mm-hmm. develop that. So mm-hmm. um, those are our three main shows. And then we have a fourth show that's kind of like, uh, I describe it as SNL for addiction prevention. <laughs> so we do, uh, it's very high energy. It's more of a sketch satire base. So um, not to get too theater nerdy on you, Jim, but- uh, Well, I, I do have 
dreams, you know, yeah. of being a thespian, so, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> which you recently squashed. We, we'll talk about that later. We can get it, into that. Yeah, we'll get into that um, ugly it's, subject. It's a really <laughs> tough business. Um, but so uh, that's a bit that Jim and I have. Uh, so so really the difference in that piece, that's a shorter piece, first of all. Um, it's we do in the fee we charge is half the the price. It's about 25 minutes. Uh, and it's not the distinction. It's not based on true stories. It's engaging the topic just with theatrical scenes. Right. So, so um, it's an invitation for conversation. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a really good uh, conversation starter. Really lets us. Um, customized to a, a school or an organization if yeah. they're like listen we have this issue with weed being totally normalized right. uh, we have a scene called beer versus pot where it's like t- like a pothead and an alcoholic debating about which is worse and you kind of see the hypocrisy in the whole conversation um, and you see that really it's how you use it right absolutely so Andy after every one of your performances I know that the uh, production players engage the audience in a talkback session. Uh, That's important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, an interactive program is always going to be better Mm -hmm. um, than one that is not. And I know from doing the research on the show, it's those talkback sessions and those chances to uh, mingle with the audience and have a one-on-one conversation where the real rubber meets the road sometimes, right? Yeah, for us, uh, and for me personally, absolutely. I mean, I've had... It's amazing using the show as a prompt in the the Q&A is like kind of a follow up because you get kids come up to you. Um, Often we also, in addition to the Q&A, we hang out after everyone starts to leave and go to their next whatever they're doing next. Uh, And so in that kind of setting, I'll have uh, like one of my first shows, I had a girl come up to me crying because her brother she said was just like the character i played in the play mm. right mm. and she recognized her family situation and then she said i don't know what to do uh and i asked her i said well what did we what did we do in the show and she's like well you got you asked someone at school for help and she was scared to do that mm. because she was worried um you know she loved her parents she was worried that they were going to get blamed for the way that he was acting uh so anyway we were able in that situation where i was talking about how uh a girl came up to us after the show basically saying that she related to what she saw and uh we were able to to get her connected with a counselor Perfect. right um we have other situations where we'll i know we have a one kid who came up to us a year after we had done a show the year prior and since they first saw the show, the first show, uh, they stopped drinking and they felt like they were going down a path of Boy. of that being an issue for them. And they had it all over their family, right? Because uh, we know addiction is uh, genetic. Oftentimes, and, yeah. And so um, it does have a genetic component, I should say. And and so those kind of stories are we get all the time. The nice thing for me about the productions um, is that they create a moment in a community that isn't an overdose mm-hmm. to talk about and consider what are we doing as a community to address this. I think that is so important. I think that is so important because um, we have short attention spans, and if you're not directly in the fight, you tend to move on um, afterwards. So I think that's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. yeah, I that to me is one of the the biggest things when we do a community show or something like that. And then obviously the educational value, I of course I would say this, but I feel is is quite strong uh and we're in alignment with good educational practice. Um the other thing I'll say is uh 
and not to be an, an infomercial for the players. But the, the other things we do are we do interactive workshops with smaller groups. Um, and that lets us have, like, we actually go to the kids and we ask, how is this a problem in your community? Show us. And we have them do reenactments and scenes and role play in that regard. And then we have them also role play excuse making because it actually makes it much more likely that they will exhibit the behavior. Even if it's in the context of like a fun theater sure. game, yeah. they'll, they're still more likely to do it if they practice it. Sure. So um, that's work we do. And then I also train uh, teachers and uh, health professionals on how to have an empathetic uh, helpful conversation with someone who you think might be struggling. So important, yeah. um, more so now than ever. Uh, the way that you get a hold of the Improbable Players, we have two means. Uh, one is on the internet. You're at improbableplayers.org. Mm-hmm. And, right. and my email is players at improbableplayers.org, and Great. I will see that right away. Will you give out a phone number? Sure. Uh, my number is 781-541-0510. Again, that's 781 781- Five four one zero five one zero, and you can reach me there. And the improbable players are at eight hundred four three seven four three zero three. How about that? Yeah, that's even better. Huh? Look at that. Um, <laughs> so a- another great piece of this that I can't let go by is that that your players are all in recovery. Yeah. So you've had over, over two hundred come through your um, theater troupe in in the uh, gosh since nineteen eighty four. Um, so you're employing uh, players only in long-term recovery. And, and so it's really a, a, a circle here, isn't it? Can yeah. you describe what it's like for a player and, and how it helps sustain their recovery? Yeah, well, f- so from a global view, in the last five years, um, I don't believe we've had anyone relapse while mm-hmm. actively working with Interesting. us. Um, and, and part of that for me, and then I'll just talk about my experience with yeah, it because yeah. I have some. Uh is you create a community uh, based in recovery. So you're basing your work together in um, the shared experience. Uh, And uh, and that's very helpful uh, and therapeutic. And then you're using your story to be useful, uh, which, you know, you're basically turning uh, what was really difficult and painful into something that's helpful to other people. Um, And to me, that, that reconnects me with the past, but... It, it really reframes it in a, in a way that is healthy. Yeah. Um, I don't relive, like when I tell my one minute story on yeah. stage, I'm not like reliving the horrors, yeah. you know, anymore. Yeah. It's, it's really just like this, it takes the teeth out of it. It's like, this is what happened. Uh, now things are different in part because of this work and, uh, and to see it be useful and to have those conversations, especially with kids after shows, uh, is so rewarding. It's so positive. So let's dig into Andy Short. Yeah. Why don't you tell us something about yourself and your story, if you'd like to? Sure. Yeah, I can. I can talk about that. Um, First of all, I, w- I want to let. I'm going to pull the curtain back on radio a little bit here. Andy Short is 28 years young. And I think if you've been listening for the past 28 minutes and 30 seconds, you probably would have guessed he's a bit older from a wisdom standpoint. He is an extremely engaging, uh, I can say, young man because he's my son's age. You don't mind if I say that to a young man, do you? Go for it. I'll take it. <laughs> um, but um, what I found in working with Andy is he's equal part uh, intelligent um, and 
uh, engaging, most importantly, but also very funny. And humor absolutely engages people, uh, disarms them. Well, I'm I'm lucky because I got sober when I was, I got into recovery, I should say, when I was 20. So mm-hmm. it was two weeks before my 21st birthday. Uh, which which I always say made for a very weird 21st birthday. I was going to say, most kids are not yeah. entering recovery on their 21st birthday. I don't know birthday. if you know this, Jim, yeah. but there are some societal expectations for what you do in your 21st birthday. Andy, I do. Yeah. I live them. <laughs> I did not align with that at all. Yeah. I was like at a hookah bar. Uh, and it was like just sad with some friends from call, from high school. <laughs> it was weird. So, so you're at a hookah bar. Yeah, right. and everyone else is like they're da- like they're normal, mostly normal. I hadn't really kind of gotten a lot of friends in recovery yet. Yeah, so they're all just like regular. Well, you're only twenty years old, kid. There you go. I mean, I know. And so, <laughs> so, so it was uncomfortable. Right. And I was like, I had a crush on this girl who didn't like me back. It was bad. So was, what, what pushed you into recovery? Uh, so I, you know, uh, it helps just to zoom out a little bit. Like I grew up in, uh, in Lexington, Mass. My parents worked for the post office. Um, that was a weird, that kind of, you know, early on. I got this feeling of like, oh, I'm, we're a little bit different because, because of their postal office. Well, yeah, because there was it was a community where most of the, my peers were a little bit better off financially. Right. right. Uh, and that, and I just mentioned that because like I had this little twinge of like, oh, I'm I don't fit in. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Um, which I come I've come to understand that like most humans have that at some point. Um, but and for we me, still don't fit in. <laughs> No, Neither we don't. We don't. But that's okay. Uh, and and now, but now it's a point of pride. Right. Exactly. Uh, I love it. Exactly. Uh, but so I felt from a very young age, I recognized that I was a little bit different. Felt a little bit different. Um, and I think that that could have been normal. And I think if I didn't have the disease of addiction, uh, it it would have been, uh, and I would have gotten over it. But I didn't get over it. Uh, I started. Uh, smoking weed actually when I was 16. So it was actually later than uh, a lot of people who develop an addiction. But um, I started when I was 16 uh, primarily because I was... I was uncomfortable in my own skin. Uh, you know, I, I think it started kind of in that way, innocently. I didn't have any of this context of, of you know, all the wonderful brain science and developmental, yeah, right. you know. I hadn't had my education degree at the age of 16. Right. So, uh, so I started there, started drinking at that age as well. Um, and the difference for me was when I got, I had this moment in my senior year of high school when I was uh, I was auditioning for acting schools, I was to be a famous actor. No, uh, st- someday I would argue someday. you are now. But... <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Uh, That's all we do here at Chapters. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're not famous, not yet. Okay. Anyway, uh, I've been. In I'm a... sorry, I interrupted the story it's at okay. a very bad time. I've been in a, a short film yeah. once, okay, uh, and I did have someone do my makeup, so that to good. me was successful. That's cool. Uh, and so, but anyway, so I, I'm in my senior year of high school. I'm auditioning for schools. Becomes clear that I'm going to go to a school that my family does not have any ability to, to pay for. My dad's freaking out. Uh, 
where there's like, you know, just kind of conflict at home um, about that. My mom has taken my side because she's like, he's got to live his dreams. <laughs> she's very supportive. This My mom was, she's at every show yeah. that I've ever done. Sure. Even when it's the same show. <laughs> I'm like, mom, you saw this show twice. She's like, yeah, but I like to see how it gets better. Yeah. Uh, and you're the best part. Oh, like that kind of mom. So it wasn't like, that it wasn't my um, the environment as much as it was kind of the for me I talk about it as an inside job and really what I mean by that is I had at some point it it just developed into addiction yeah and and uh and my response to that stress was to really go down a hole of of smoking weed a lot yeah um yeah and this was before it was legal, even partially before it was decriminalized, although I think it was during maybe my senior year of high school. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I was just smoking weed all the time to, to deal with that anxiety. And uh, when I got to college, that's how I started building my relationships was on a, on a basis of, hey, you do you? High. Yeah, and I would say I was such a tool. I would be like, <laughs> hey, do you partake? Uh, really? Yeah, that, that was, was my line. Dramatic, yeah, pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah, I was a I was a young actor. Yeah, uh, and and I got to college, and it turns out, you know, you you're like, you know, I was the the president of the drama club in yeah. high school, and everyone's the president of the drama club from their high school and college. Right. <laughs> oh, so like, Uh-oh. I'm sensing a little more not fitting in. Yeah, a little bit. Well, it yeah. not. It was more just straight up insecurity at okay. this point. Okay. All right. Yeah. Just we, we graduated. Really vanilla, run of the mill. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, I'm not as good as kind of stuff. And yeah. So again, my response is to kind of dive deeper into the the substances. So where did that straw come? Where did that Where did that bottom come? Where did you say, you know what? That's it. I'm done. I'm I'm really in trouble here. So it's interesting for me uh, you know and we know that something like 60 percent of uh, addiction is comorbid with another uh, mental mm-hmm. illness or disorder and um, for me I experienced the anxiety and depression to a, a really intense degree yeah and uh, and I sought help for that uh, actually my freshman year of college I got Great. on I got on meds I got a therapist the issue Jim is uh, when you're not honest about how much other substances you're pumping into your body, the the antidepressants don't tend to work so good, yeah. and the therapist uh, can't really help you. Right. So, uh, and, and that for me, like, I mean, that's kind of typical, um, I think, uh, addicted behavior, but uh, I see now, but, but I just wasn't in a place where I could see, first of all, the use as a problem uh, in and of itself, uh, separate from my depression issues and nothing I was doing then because I wasn't able to be honest about that was helping my depression. So it started to spiral. I can hear Facebook lighting up right now with, can you be addicted to marijuana? Oh boy. Uh, so I'm going to ask Andy short for his experience. What would that answer be for you? So, I mean, that was my drug of choice, Yeah, you know, um, Weed took me down. I, I didn't need, you know, I feel very, actually I feel fortunate today that I, that it didn't get to some um, other substances where the, they're just the, lethal, the lethality is higher. But um, I was at a place at my, at the end of my using where I was absolutely suicidal. Uh, and I told you this and it was not really a product of my environment. I was in school. I had a place to live. I had a food in my belly. I had parents that loved me and I had friends. Mm. 
Uh, but I was absolutely ready uh, to to end my own life because uh, I I, th- I had I think depression in its own right certainly, but my solution was to uh, solve that with with weed, and it was uh, it just spiraled, mm-hmm. and then the weed made me more depressed. And then I would try to cut it out for a while or I would try to try something else. I'd drink more. And then I would get a little bit better and then I would start again. And so I found I could not stop that cycle. Mm-hmm. And I, it got to a point where I knew what would happen to me. I knew I get really depressed when I smoke uh, and I can't stop smoking. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was at the end. So you took yourself and said, I'm done. Yeah, well, I, I well, uh, not quite. <laughs> yeah, a little more so, complicated. So I, uh, again, you're 20 years old. I'm I mean, 20... I'm not expecting, I wasn't expecting you to say, yes, Jim, I did it all myself. Well, the truth is that I think the thing, and if I go back and I think back to really a moment, um, and I don't know where this moment comes from. It's kind of a miracle given the history yeah. that I had. Yeah. But I had a moment where I was finally honest with that drug counselor. Mm-hmm. The, not the drug counselor, just the counselor yeah. I was seeing. Yeah, yeah. And she said, uh, this is at a point where you need to get help and you cannot be in this environment anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I was literally removed from, I politely asked to leave, uh, the institution mm-hmm. I was going mm-hmm. for school. Uh, and I was basically uh, voluntarily forced to go to treatment. Got it. Um, if I didn't go, I was going to be sectioned. So. Uh, which is a way of uh, making someone involuntary yeah, commitment. Sure, exactly. Sure, um, and it stuck. Uh, that I was very lucky that it stuck. Yeah, stuck one time. Um, that well, I had. So that's the other piece, right? We talk about the recovery being mm-hmm. complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I want to be clear. I went into treatment for depression. So I didn't think that I had this drug alcohol issue when I got sober. They, I see. <laughs> once I was, but at that point, right, you would, I'd opened the floodgate and everything was coming through. So I told them about all my behavior, mm-hmm. all my coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was uh, diary of the mouth, really, and uh, it went <laughs> everywhere. And so they were like, "Oh, you might want to go to this uh, this meeting. It was a twelve step meeting that came to the yeah. the facility, and uh, and we're also going to give you." Uh, counseling for drug use yeah. and yeah. I was like okay fine and yeah, whatever uh, whatever <laughs> um, if you say so but <laughs> it, but it turns out there's just a community around recovery that I found that was much more robust uh, and helpful than the community around depression mm. and that's <laughs> that's just a state of what I found when I came back to, to mass the power in sharing your story is that I know that there are people that can identify with this. I know that I can. And um, earlier in the program, you said, is there an argument about uh, substance use disorder being a disease? No, there isn't any longer because, and the doctors have done their research, and the research is in. The research is also in on this. The disease of substance use disorder, addiction, alcoholism, is now defined by the National Institute of Health as a mental illness. So guess what? Uh, we all have anxiety, depression to certain degrees in our lives. It's just a matter of magnitude. Um, some of it's situational, some of it's clinical, some of it's chemical, some of it's from external factors, but it's there. And and our brain is an organ, an important organ in our body. So there is there is a chance that, that some of us are going to be affected by this. So 
the wonderful part about your story is that you have done something that um, earlier, and that, my gosh, that was eight years ago now, um, done something that treatment centers are starting to do now, which they're, they're unbundling this dual diagnosis sort of treatment modality and saying, look, we're just treating the, whole, the person in front of us, the whole person as they present. That said, there is that 12-step program that happens to work for a lot of people uh, for a lifetime, and, and you were introduced to that, and yeah. it's worked for you. And for me, you know, like, uh, I, I'm kind of a, a joiner and a rebel in the same body. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, someone tells me what to do, my first reaction is to be like, well, you know, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, and at the same time, uh, that kind of social structure was really helpful for yeah. me, especially as a young person yeah. uh, getting sober. And, uh, and so it stuck and I found that the two did correlate. So when I was, when I stayed sober, my mood improved, right? Surprise, surprise. And, uh, and I had, uh, but I struggled with this idea of what addiction was and whether I had it or not, because a lot of my, um, what I describe now as, as powerlessness or lack of control over my use, uh, was, was a lot of like, oh, I'm not going to use today because I'm going to, I have a test tomorrow and then I end up using or, uh, you know, I'm just going to drink and then I smoke. Right. And so I saw that as actually just as like just poor control. I didn't think I didn't really have control over it. And so what happened is I, at six months sober, I relapsed. I went out, I went to a party and, uh, drank and, and smoked again. And that to me was an experience of like, I don't want to do this. I, I know that it's going to be really unhealthy for me. I know I might get caught in this cycle again, and I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. And and that to me was a real eye opener of like, oh, I have both of these things. Yeah. You so know? the relapse was an important part of your story. It, yeah, and you know, I I try to frame that really carefully yeah. uh, because I don't think it necessarily needed to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I think in relapse, especially with different substances, can be really dangerous. Yeah. Um, and that could have gone two ways, yeah. right? And I'm fully aware of that. That could have gone, uh, oh, I can get away with it, you know? That that little thought in the back of my brain that, oh, you know, I can do this thing. Isn't isn't this illness is an illness that tells you that you're not sick continually? And that's the big fantasy of, of, of every alcoholic and addict is that we can one day control our drinking or drugging, right? And so that was your attempt and you said "Uh -uh, not so much (laughs) yeah right yeah it was clear that the control wasn't there yeah yeah Um, well thank you for sharing i mean i i think it's it's so instructive for people um and helps so many people understand again i want to remind you we're speaking with andy short andy short is from the improbable players he's the co-executive director my name's jim derrick this is chaptersradio.com. We're having a great conversation. Andy, I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. I know that you've had, you're, you're, a very, you're a very funny guy. A quick story on how I met Andy. We went in to have a meeting in their office, and um, I've always prided myself on being a very, um, a, an aspiring thespian. Is that what it's called, a thespian? Nailed it. I'm always nervous Nailed that I'm it. saying it wrong. Oh, the language I, is on point. Yeah. Is that right? Right? And so um, immediately, of course, Andy picked, picked that up, right, because there was some sort of vibe going on, and said, gee, you might be good in our production, but it's a tough business. 
<laughs> so sure enough, when I when I uh, I got my rejection uh, email from Andy, which Andy really I, I took pretty well to be honest with you. Uh, I tried to be diplomatic. Yeah, yeah. Can I clarify something? Please here? do. I just want to set the record straight. Please, yeah, you uh, can try. Because I, <laughs> I mean, I know you have final edits, so really there's nothing <laughs> I can do. But um. Uh, I had thought for some reason, I don't know why I thought you were in, uh, recovery some, from substance use disorder specifically. Most people think I haven't recovered based on the way I present, but I understand. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. But, and so the tension was that, uh, since we're currently, we only do shows with, uh, people who are in re- active recovery from substance use disorder, right. that that was that was the sticking issue, not your talent. I want to be right. clear on that. You know what? Your and talent I, is clear. I accept that. I accept that wholeheartedly. Um, I, I do find your humor to be very, very funny. And you said at one time you had a stand-up routine. I <laughs> worked out. You went to a class. I did. I took a class. So I perform improv, yeah. uh, which is like, you know, it's, it's like the the reading the book right before you go into class version of comedy where like you just you know you don't you rehearse for it but you don't have to memorize any of it but i wanted to just stand up because i'm because i thought uh you know why not uh i'm i want to try to do this thing on my own improv is more of a team sport and uh so i took a class at improv boston which is a place i I actually teach a couple classes now um not in stand-up but in improv uh who are the comedians that, that you really like oh my gosh and then I actually went to to school with two comedians who I love, um, Matt Rogers and Bo and Yang, and they have a podcast as well. Great, look them up. Every comedian folks. has a podcast. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then, do you know the show Crazy Ex Girlfriend? I've seen it. If I've heard I, it. Yeah. If I may name drop, please do. Thank you. Uh, I was in a sketch group with Rachel Bloom, who's who's in that show and founded the show, and uh, and she's incredible, and that show is incredible. And if you haven't seen that show, uh, please go see it. They yeah. have won and, and that's crazy what? Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Wow, look at Rachel Bloom. Yeah, she's amazing. Holy moly. Uh, she's wonderful. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was that was my whole, that was my kind of, my, that's my very, comedy very cool. Well, you know, one of the things that I love is um, the old George Carlin, uh, Jimmy Tingle does it, his guy locally here that I have. Saw George make. Carlin live. You saw George Carlin I live? Did. Yeah. My God, like, it must have been just before he died. It was. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's it's talking about stuff that we've all seen but just forgot to laugh at the first time, which is the premise behind a lot of the humor that Seinfeld does. And, and, and it's all timing and it's it's absolutely hysterical. And then there's the other side where Robin Williams or Jonathan Winters, if you watch some of their old stuff, it's absolutely off the wall. Improv, 100 um, percent. Uh, Jonathan Winters, unfortunately, did suffer from mental illness, but but one of the side effects of that was this incredible sense of humor and this ability to adopt characters is instantaneously. Have you seen him? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. Great, great stuff. Um, but I think laughter is kind of... Yeah. Jimmy V has a great speech from the ESPYs that apparently you've seen, mm. which was... No, I know his name. I just... Yeah, he was a coach, and he was dying of pancreatic cancer, and he gave a speech when he won an ESPY, and he said, look, when you laugh hard cry hard and love fiercely in one day you know you've had one great day because laughter and crying are very closely connected right and uh it's just a matter of um of um being able to express yourself freely it's the experience of being alive yeah it's the experience of being alive right yeah i you know and it's funny not to just my experience with the players like the first thing we do is we try to make that audience laugh yeah you know because then you connect with the group that's what i do whenever i do any of my work yeah yeah 
because they, you know, then you, then they start to trust you. Yeah, Andy, we can find things. Uh, we can find things that make us laugh. You know, just by just by observing what's going on around here. I mean, one of the things that absolutely cracks me up, and I don't know why, because it happens every day, particularly in the Northeast. You walk into a coffee shop or in anywhere these days, and you say hello to somebody, and it's like you've insulted them. Do, do you know what I mean by that? It's, you know, hey, how you doing? Good. How you doing? And then get out of my way. Well, yeah, I'm trying to get my cigarettes or I'm trying to get my coffee or whatever it is. Down south, it's the entire opposite. You could have an entire conversation getting a stick of gum. Yeah. You know, and, and those are the little things that I find absolutely hysterical. I find the south, the, for that reason, deeply disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why. Because you don't want to have that. Are you the high? No, I say doing this. Back? I say this all in all in jest and sarcasm. Everything I say sounds sarcastic. I always tell this to whenever I work with a group. I'm like, listen, I struggle with sincerity. Yeah, there are going to be times when I say things, and I mean them sincerely, but they sound like I am insulting you. Yeah, in your intelligence, you need a you need a sincerity indicator light. I, yeah, on your forehead. I need. I do. I need. Yeah, yeah a button of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Um. But but yeah, I kind of love the Boston Northeast thing for like that you you know exactly where you stand with really? every person you meet, and you have to earn their affection. You don't just get it. I don't get a lot of affection. <laughs> have you noticed that? You got to earn it. You're not earning <laughs> well, it. I don't think that's the problem. I think it's something to do with me, I, and we're so provincial too. That's mm -hmm. the other thing. I mean, everything around here is. I, I joke with my wife all the time. I'm like, hey, honey, we got to get away. Let's go to Milford for the weekend. The sunsets are amazing. Nobody leaves. I didn't even know Worcester existed when I was a kid. True story. God is my witness. I had no idea that Worcester existed. You know, I, I was lucky if I made it into Arlington. Yeah, but you were in Lexington. Yeah. Who wants to leave? Oh, they no one. No one wants. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you don't even have the accent from Lexington. I didn't. No. Well, so it's weird. My parents and my brother all have thick Boston accents. All grew up yeah. in Lexington. Yeah. And then it, it quickly fled. Didn't they the outlaw, area. though, recently, the uh, Boston the accent? accent in Lexington? Yeah. It's, more, it's more like this now, right? <laughs> yeah, it's much more. Actually, yeah. the Kennedys came in and did a workshop. Oh, they uh, Yeah. <laughs> they did a teaching. Yes, yes. Was, I know what you mean. On the culture the culture issue, yeah. I went, it's funny, because I'm very, I was, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a townie. I don't have the <laughs> accent. But I have the... I have the uh, the attitudinal uh, issues of oh. a Boston person, which is to say, uh, someone who has a, a an aggressive inferiority complex. <laughs> it's like my I always say like the quintessential Boston phrase is "What the hell are you looking at?" Yes, it's, yes. It's, it's just, and like if you really unpack that, it's it's just insecurity masked as aggression. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I go to I did this trip this summer this past summer for three weeks for three months rather uh, biking around Europe and it was as good as it sounds Jim but uh, but seriously you 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 took a bike and this is something frankly that I find very threatening to me I could I can't imagine myself on a bicycle in Franklin alone let alone Europe and it was three months yeah so tell us about it well so I mean it kind of ties into I found biking as. Uh, as a treatment for depression, in a way, yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, I've, back in 2015, I got, I did a cross country ride with a group, um, and that for me, when I found my addiction was was in remission, so to speak. But my my depression had definitely popped up several times in my sobriety, and it was something I was very confused by. And one of the remedies for me, 
was to do these crazy bike trips. So uh, I was lucky I was a teacher, so I could go in the summer and I could bike for long periods of time. So I do, I try to do one every year. Uh, and so I did one 2015 and then I did like a little baby one 2016. Um, and then we talked a little bit about it and it kind of takes it out of the realm of, of comedy. But uh, my mom passed away suddenly. Mm. She had uh, ovarian cancer. Mm. I'm sorry. And, uh, and I wanted to do something uh, in this. I don't mean to sound like a, a weird little angel, but I needed to, for me, I needed to do something active to like to deal with that grief. I understand. Uh, and I needed it to be something that was productive. So I, there was a charity she worked with called the Children's Room. They do grief counseling. You know, kind of not maybe not ironically, but coincidentally is, enough, yeah, yeah. grief counseling for young people. Interesting. And I'm not a young person anymore. I'm like 27, <laughs> right. but I, you know, I'm getting up there. Uh, but but I wanted so I raised money for this charity. I said I'm going to do this ride, raise money for them, and it'll all be kind of of a piece. Mm. So uh, uh, I booked. I booked out three months. I had. I was decided I was going to stop teaching. Um, left that job and and got on a plane and biked around for. That's fantastic, a while. Andy. Uh, uh, when did your mom pass? It was. Ooh, it was February 2016. And you managed to stay sober through that. Yeah. And, yeah, that and, was and when tough. I say managed to stay sober, right? I, thank you. Yeah. That's what I meant. That's not an easy feat. <laughs> no. For a young person um, who entered recovery only six years, short years prior to that, well, with the most intense emotion you can possibly experience. It was, and it was incredible. But I will say there's something about that grief in the process of having to like really kind of pull it together. I don't think anyone in my family would argue I'm one of the, because I got sober and had a lot of therapy, uh, I have a good, I have an amount of emotional intelligence maybe that... Uh, that uh, not everyone in my family has. So I had to kind of pull it together for a lot of folks. And me and my brother, my brother was very helpful in this regard as well. And and so uh, it gave me a focus, mm-hmm. honestly. The dangerous part for me was like three months later. Right. You know, it was like the People like, go away. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you're and, left with your emotion, which is just starting. The grief process is just really beginning. Exactly. Yeah. And and the, what saved me, honestly, was the fact that I had had this... Um, incredible support system that was based in recovery yeah uh and that those people kept showing up for me and and i kept going to meetings uh and so those two things combined really um really changed the game i there were definitely moments where i i will be honest i considered uh using again Mm -hmm. in that period and uh and that's even a thought that hadn't really entered my mind in a long time Mm -hmm. but it was like just that like what's the point that what's the point thing happening? Yeah, because she was gone, and uh, and eventually, luckily, I was able to get through that with the help of a lot of people. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it's an incredible experience, and you know, Andy, you share so openly and uh, honestly, and you're so transparent, if you will. Um, it's a very, very engaging trait. But that really is something that comes from within. It may. I bet your mom was terrific. Mm. I bet she just was a tremendous influence in your life. You're nodding in the affirmative. Um, and, and I think that being emotionally intelligent to me is kind of the cornerstone of not only wellness, but I think social emotional intelligence is what carries us through life. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I, I mean, I do, I do think the, the community uh, aspect of it gets a short shrift sometimes. Like, I don't, I don't think of, and I'm not trying to humble brag here, <laughs> but yeah. like, I don't think, 
I'm like a hero for for going through kind of what I went through and coming out the other side. I think lots of people do that. I think I'm very lucky, and I I reflect upon this on a, a lot for a couple reasons. One is because I did grow up in a very affluent place. I had resources available to me, right? found out this statistic this weekend when I was doing a, a workshop at a social justice conference on how addiction, uh, how you can have conversations about addiction, that uh, addiction rates don't vary hugely across demographics, mm-hmm. right? So addiction really is uh, a, an equal opportunity disease. Uh, and there are some higher, the highest rates are actually in uh, Caucasian folks and Native American folks. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet... Two thirds of people in treatment are white, uh, and so Ugh. you know I don't. Uh, different people feel differently about this. I don't think it's a political issue. Like those are the numbers, um, and so I'm really grateful that you know I was at an institution that could help me, uh, and and I've been getting an education on how to uh, live in the world uh, for the last. Eight years. Yeah, yeah, and and it comes through. Yeah, and you've you've done well. You've you've. Um, I'm just. I, I I can't let it go by. You can humble humble brag all you want, but <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, it comes through in droves. Um, do you have any closing thoughts you want? Um, Anything we missed? Yeah, I mean, I just want to reiterate that uh, for me personally, this. Uh, you know, a lot of people get sober and they work in recovery or they encounter addiction and the response is, uh, is to get into recovery and work somewhere in the recovery field. And, and that's what this is for me. Uh, this is like working with the improbable players and using uh, my story and the stories of other people who encounter this disease uh, to help fix what is wrong. Um, I think is just like deeply profound. And for me, it's, it's fundamentally changed my life and let me move through the world in, in a way that lets me, like we talked about earlier, it lets me get to a place of happiness. We, uh, like that's where we're, what we're all trying to do, yeah, you know? Right, right. And, and so, um, I'm very grateful to this work and I'm grateful for you for all the work you do. Um, it's an incredible. I mean, thank you, Andy. Well, I, I'm going to say this: um, if you want to get a hold of the Improbable Players at www.improbableplayers.org, and I want you to give Andy a call if you'd like at seven eight one five four one zero five one zero. You can either have them in your community, you can have them in your schools, middle school, all the way through high school. Um, I, I just want you to find out where they're playing, see if it's an open performance. We have one on May twenty fourth, right here in Foxborough at 7 p.m. at the Old Orpheum Theater. I'd love you to come out and see it. Tickets are free of charge. It's all sponsored. And I want to tell you this, Andy. Um, if I have a child in elementary school uh, that sees you and speaks with you, you are very, very relatable and approachable. The work that you can do to inspire these young men and women to understand what it was like for you, relate to how they might be feeling, and show them resources for any emotional problems or or actually substance abuse problems that they or their friends might be having. I gotta tell you, I would want my child speaking to, to Andy Short. So once again, Andy, I want to thank you very much for coming in. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on stage. Thank you so much for having me. All right. For Andy Short, my name's Jim Derrick saying thanks again for listening to Chapters Radio. 